And I said, no, we have to, we have to let him go. I don't want to see him suffer. And with that, they turned off all the machines and a couple minutes later, they pronounced him and he was gone. I was kind of angry at him. Like all through the military, you're taught, talked about suicide and make sure you're aware of this, make sure you're watching out for each other. And I felt like he took the coward's way out of, how could you do this to us? I thought, I don't know what you went through. I wish I would have told me, but this is what you wanted. We miss him. We love him. And I'm so sorry that our daughter won't get to know him. Take a girl and a guy, and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean, and this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couples Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, every day we get to hear intimate details about a couple's celebrations, disappointments, and everyday challenges. We've often wished these stories were shared because we know we are more similar than different. So we've created not only an avenue we can hear about people's intimate lives, but an atmosphere where people come over to our home pub, pour a drink, and share their stories. In past episodes, when we talked about Jean's cousin, Patrick, who had lost his battle to his internal demons, and... You know, today we have some very special guests. We have Patrick's family here, and they're here to share their story and, you know, their perspective on their family and and honoring Patrick. So I want to introduce them, if you guys can just kind of say your name and how old are you and what do you guys do for a living? All right. I am Christine. I'm Patrick's mom. I am 53, and I teach preschool. Uh, my name is James. I'm his older brother. Uh, currently working on my master's degree uh, at NIU. Uh, Thirty years old and yeah, professional student, I guess. I'm Amanda. I'm Patrick's sister-in-law, James's wife. I'm 28, and I'm a school teacher. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. Chris, can you tell us a story about how you and Mike met and how your family started? Michael and I worked at the same company. We both worked for a forklift company in Schiller Park. How old were you guys? I was 19 and he was 25. He was an outside service mechanic. I worked in the accounting department, so I could kind of watch him coming and going. And the service department and the parts department were going to a Sox game one evening and I was one of the few front office people that was allowed to come that day. (laughs) 
So we went and had a great time. And that morning, for some reason, um, I couldn't find a ride to work. So I walked from our house in Norwich to Shilla Park on, was it River Road? That was a haul. And walked back home, got ready and came back because we all met at work and my feet were killing me. So by the time we were done with the game, we were walking back to the bus and I kept complaining about how my feet hurt. And he goes, well, hop on, I'll give you a ride. So got a piggyback ride all the way back to the bus. And we sat in the same seat and talked and talked and got back to work. And he goes, would you like to go for a ride? And I'm like, sure. And we spent the rest of the early morning hours until about 5.30 that morning riding on his Harley all over Chicago and Norwich and Des Plaines. And we've basically been together ever since. When did you know that he was the one? The first time he kissed me. So it was that pretty early on? It was that night. <laughs> it was that night. Yeah, there is just something about him that just, I felt very comfortable with him. I felt very safe with him. And I was very much free to be myself. And that's what I really liked. I didn't have to pretend to be somebody I wasn't. And how did you guys get engaged? And how long was it between the first date and getting engaged? Let's see. Baseball game was June 29th. We were engaged the following February. And that happened. We were at grandpa's one of his birthday parties and every time grandpa saw michael and i together he'd be when are you marrying that girl when are you marrying her <laughs> and it'd been less than a year less than a year and you were 19 mm-hmm. <laughs> yep 19 and he kept saying when are you going to marry her and michael would just kind of laugh you know okay one day and so we left there and we got on 294 and Maybe a mile in, he pulls over to the side of the road and goes, okay, do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to? <laughs> do you want to? Did he have a ring? No. Okay. No. He had plans that he was going to do it on Valentine's Day. So it was just a few days earlier. And I said, sure, let's do this. And so I think that was February 11th, I think. And we were married that September 5th. I remember your wedding. Mm, it was a good time. It was a very good time. <laughs> very good time. Yep. And how long till you start a family? Not even a year. A couple months later, that February. So we were married in September and I got pregnant in February and Thomas appeared in November. November 13th. Yes. And Friday I know that because Alec was born December 13th. Yes. A month later. Absolutely. And you brought Thomas over to my house. I did. <laughs> and I we did. became moms at the same time. We did. Yep. Yeah. Quite a bit ago. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I kept trying to leave and it's a gentleman that you are with. No, I have this question for you. I have this question for you. And yeah. he wouldn't let me leave. So Thomas <laughs> is the same crazy. age as Alec. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're a month apart. Mm-hmm. Well, how how far apart are we? I'm in November. I'm June. So we're we're a couple months five apart. months apart. No, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. And Patrick is three weeks older than Annie's son Kyle. Okay, yeah. 
who James is and Elizabeth are in the mix. Got it. So how old was Thomas when you had James? 17 months. And then... And James was born on income tax day, April 15th. <laughs> and then we had a miscarriage. Patrick's born on the 15th, too. Yep. Yep. So we had Friday the 13th of November, income tax day, April 15th. Grandpa's birthday, February 12th. This is Elizabeth. She was born on his really 80th birthday. Wow. Yep. Yep. And then Patrick is December 15th. And, and there was a and miscarriage in between James and how, Elizabeth. How pregnant were you when you had a miscarriage? Maybe seven or eight weeks. That's a tough thing to go through. This one, it didn't, it didn't affect me like it had others because mm-hmm. I barely found out I was pregnant and the next couple of days I lost it. So we hadn't really settled into, oh, we were having another mm-hmm. one before. Yeah, those things are are difficult because you don't know the extremes of, you know, it can be like that Mm -hmm. where it's like... It happens, yeah. There was something wrong. And then there's people who can never get over it because it's so devastating. Yes. Especially if they can't have children. Did you guys plan to have as many kids as you do? Can answer that. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted six. Michael wanted one, and whatever we had, he wanted to adopt the other. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, James kind of put the kibosh on that. He did. Okay. He did, yeah. Because Thomas was eight months old when I found out I was pregnant with James. So I said, well, your adoption plans just kind of got <laughs> shot <laughs> And he got same yep. genders. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Why, why did he want to adopt? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. That was just something that he felt called to do. And, you know, but after we found out we were pregnant with James, we never investigated that or went any further with it. Now, how many years apart are everybody? Thomas and James are 17 months apart. James and Elizabeth are almost five just just short of five. And then there's three years between Elizabeth and Patrick. Patrick, or uh, James, what was it like for you growing up in this house? Uh, pure chaos at all times. No, I, I think it was a lot of fun growing up. You pretty much had run of the house almost all day or yeah, all day, all night. We had run of the house. Dad come home from work and he would have something planned, even if it was like wrestling in the living room. It was, all right, dad's home. We're doing something. I don't know what, but we are doing something. And then mom was kind of the caretaker of the case. I need, I need food. I need this cleaned. I need that clean. Or I don't know what to do, mom. And all right, well, go clean that. I don't want to do that. You have something else for me? <laughs> go outside then. All right. I guess we'll go outside then. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun growing up. How would you describe your relationships with your siblings? I would describe it as strong and absent all at once. Because we don't really see each other a lot, but we pick up right where we left off. I never had this like, oh, it's been so long. I haven't seen you. It's just, I don't know. We just pick up right Sort where of we you live off. your life. I live my life. And yeah. when we can hang out at school. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I don't feel like, what is it, stop loss or any huge gaps or anything like that is just, I don't know, 
I can't even explain it. Was it that way growing up as well? No, I, not like that. But growing up, it was you're just there at all times. And I felt like we always had each other's backs, even though we would get into a fight. It was, all right, we juked it out. We figured it out. All right, moving on. It's never held any long grudges, anything like that. Just pure fun all the time, except for like the one bump or two. But it was just that, just a bump. So what was it? How did you guys learn that Thomas was going to be in the military? Be honest, I can't remember. I just think I think it was kind of just always known because he was always reading like history, military books, World War Two and things of that nature. I think the surprising part was the Navy because he was always in the World War II, the European theater. But I guess like the tip off was the Bismarck. He would constantly be reading about the Bismarck, right? Yes. A lot of that. Yeah. I think that was the tip off of, oh yeah, Navy makes sense because he read all about this one boat, but I can't remember how I really found out except for I'm joining the Navy. Oh, okay. Have fun. <laughs> and were you part of that decision or did he make yes. it without you? Yeah. No. And um, how old was he when he, Oh gosh, 17. No, maybe 16. He came home and said that he wanted to be a Marine. And my heart kind of just sunk. I'm like, did you have to pick the toughest of the tough? And I kind of struggled with it a bit. I said, before you choose them, we're going to go talk to them. or We're going to talk to the Army, the Navy, any of the other branches that we possibly can. And we started out at the Marines. And we did their whole interview process and he's okay this is what I want to be and I said well wait you promised me you would talk to the other branches and I said, oh fine all right I'll do this and so we set up an appointment with the army and the navy and the army Thomas quickly wrote that off he didn't it wasn't for him um, the air force was part of that building, but they never replied back to us. So we just kind of wrote them off. And we spent probably three hours in the office with the Navy guys and Thomas talked their ear off. And I went, okay, Marines are out. You're, you're, <laughs> this is, and they talked to him about the different things, different jobs that they had and different things that he wanted out of the military. We left there and he goes, Mom, I this is where I want to be. This is and I said, Are you sure? And I kept asking him all the way home, Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure this is where I want to be. This is the MOS I want. This is I want this. I want this. I want this. And at so, age sixteen. At age he 16, knew all this. Yeah. Yeah. He was almost seventeen. All three of my boys we're part of what they call the delayed entry program. Mm -hmm. So as 17 going in 18, they would go down to the different offices and work with different, the different branches. So Thomas went down to there's a place in Aurora. He would go down to every, I think every either Wednesday or Thursday. I think it was for some reason, I'm thinking Thursday, but I would drive him down there and he'd stay for three or four hours and, you know, they would drill him on what it's like to become, to go to boot camp, to become a, a sailor or 
and James and Patrick would go on Wednesdays, right in St. Charles, near close to the house. Was that like a junior ROTC type of thing? I don't no, know. It, so the delayed entry program is like you would meet up with the recruiter at least once a week and you would do anything from like classes to physical training, push-ups, sit-ups, and do all that stuff. And then once a month, you would meet for three hours and you would do pretty much what you would do in boot camp of like, we're going to do log drills today. We're going to do this or that. It's definitely like geared towards mm-hmm. this is what boot camp is going to be like. As close as we And this would be with all the kids that were yeah. in that program. Yeah. So the Aurora office, I think, was kind of like the main hub. It was, was it the recruiting station? The St. Charles was a sub recruiting station or the recruiting substation, RSS. What was your decision process for going into the military? College. All about college. Because I think mom would have not let me go if I did not say something. <laughs> Along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> that you wanted to get the GI Bill and be able to finish school. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. Because, so the GI Bill, I mean, like, I was talking to the recruiter at school and he's like, yeah, the GI Bill, I mean, you pretty much get paid to go to school. And all right, that's awesome. How do I sign <laughs> up for that? And I knew mom and dad didn't have a lot of money. And I wasn't going to ask them to put me through college when I could just do it myself. So that was kind of the main motivating factor of this. I'm joining the military, whether she likes it or not, but I am getting something out of it that she wants. So why the Marines instead of going into the Navy like your brother? So the Navy didn't really have a job for me that I wanted, except for maybe Navy SEALs, but they wanted the top 1% of the military to be in the Navy SEALs. And I'm like, nah, that's not really for me. So I went to the Air Force and I'm like, all right, well, what do I want to do in the Air Force? Well, I want to be, you know, a fire pilot. Well, you have classes, so you can't do that. All right, well, I'll write you off. (laughs) And then I I went to the Army station and it was, I don't know if it was a setup or something like that, but the Marine recruiter that took me to the office, he's like, I don't think you're going to like this because this is one kind of like the final push of like, we need to get as many bodies as we can into the military because of the global war on terrorism. And he was sitting at the office or sitting at the doorway while I was talking with him. I'm like, all right, well, paratrooper, you know, something along those lines is like, yeah, yeah, that's perfect for you. And I'm like, right. Well, my final question is, do you accept criminals and things of that nature, like court order sign up things? No, we don't do that. And no longer than, 30 seconds after he said that, someone came in and said, I got a court order. I got to be here and sign up for the military or yeah, sign up for the army. And I immediately like just put my hands together. Thanks for your time. I'm, I'm out. And the uh, Marine recruiter just kind of big old grin on his face. Like I knew you'd be back. <laughs> what year was that? That was 2000, 2007. And what was going on militarily in the world? That was, Iraq and Afghanistan. My, I didn't really agree with the Iraq war, but I was kind of promised that, yeah, oh, yeah, you probably go into Afghanistan. We, we don't really do Iraq, even though the Marines were in Iraq, like all through that operation. Did you know where you were going to be? So 
I don't know. I might have been lied to, but my, what by the military? Oh, so, <laughs> but my recruiter, like, so I scored high enough on the ASVAB that I pretty much had any job available to me except for nuclear, biological, chemical stuff, and there was one other job that I wasn't. I didn't score high enough on the ASVAB, but I, I had every job available to me. I'm like, well, what jobs have bonuses? Well, infantry has this whatever. I think it was like $60,000 sign-on bonus, but you'd have to do six years or something like that. And I'm like, mm, I'll just do one contract and see how that goes. And then they there was a $5,000 sign-on bonus for security forces. So I'm like, all right, well, tell me about security forces. And, oh, it's like the SWAT of the Marine Corps. It is not. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, $5,000 for signing on, do five years. Sounds good to me. And that's kind of my driving factor where I went in the military. Did you have a different idea of what it would be like before you went in and then had a different experience once you were in? Yeah, I thought kind of like going on the nostalgia of like World War II and things of that nature of like the command's going to be behind you 100%. They're going to pick the best of the best and it was going to be like merit based and it was almost the complete opposite of my experience. It was, I think, halfway through the military, or yeah, halfway through my contract, I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm done with this. I cannot stand you guys at all. You, I have people that went straight out of high school like I did that are in leadership positions, and they have like no common sense whatsoever. They got there merely because they ran fast and did a lot of pull-ups, and it's just like, why are these people here? You should not have these people in these leadership positions. And how long did you serve for? Because I had uh, five years active duty and three years inactive duty. Should have been four years inactive, but I did one full year in the delayed entry program, so that counted. Got it. And is there anything you want to share about your experience? It was a awe-inspiring experience of the people that I met of, wow, you should not be in the military. Why are you not a CEO of some Fortune 500 company? And then there was also, how did you make it here? How did you make it through boot camp? Like, you should have been washed out week one. Why is that? Just from the lackadaisical aspect of how they felt about the military. When it came to physical training, nah, I'm doing the bare minimum. Kind of, kind of need you to be physically fit to do this job. Nah, I'm not doing that. Why are you here then? And then we also had this one Marine that he didn't shoot. He like he didn't take anything really serious. It was he was a libo hound of I need to get off. How do, how do I get off? And it's like why are you even here then? Why why did you sign up? Like what's your motivation? And he couldn't think of one. I'm like all right, well don't know why you're here. You need to need to do something else, bro. <laughs> yeah, you know, Chris, you said that your heart sank when Thomas wanted to go into the Marines. What was your reaction when James wanted to go into the Marines? It sank even farther. This is the first time hearing that he talked to other branches. Because mm. when I told him I want you to go talk to the other branches, thinking, okay, he's going to be like Thomas, and and he no. I am going into the Marines, and I don't care what you say. This is what I'm doing. I'm ready to sign my contract. 
And because of his schooling issue, he he was already 18, his senior year. So I basically, I stood there and watched him sign the papers. I had, like with Thomas and Patrick, I signed for them to be in the delayed entry program. I didn't have to do that with James. He did ask me to be there when he signed papers. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then when he was deployed overseas, what was that like for you? Uh, that was really hard. He was, most of the time he was able to tell us, hey, I'm going, you know, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to, you know, wherever he was being deployed to. They were never able to give us like certain time frames. Oh, I might be gone six months. I might be gone a year. You never know. I think in James's time in there, there we only had the one phone call I remember getting and it's mom I'm I'm leaving I can't tell you anything I can't give you any details just know I love you I gotta go click and that was three weeks of pure hell three weeks just wondering not knowing anything Nothing, nothing. And from the time Thomas said that he went into the military, I stopped watching the news. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, you know, Michael would have it on and I'd hear bits and pieces of it. But for the most part, I never sat and watched, watched the news. So I had no idea where he was going or what was, what was happening at that time. How did you cope with that? Actually, I'm not sure. I have a very good friend who I could tell anything to besides Michael, and I talk to her a lot. I go to work um, because we happen to work in the same classroom together, and she listened to my fears, my happiness. She listened to everything, and it was just three weeks, and... You know, did you hear anything? No, we haven't heard anything. You know, haven't, you know, haven't heard. I don't know what to do. And I'm just, and there were a couple of times I remember her go run this off. I need you to cut this. And she'd literally have to tell me step by step how to do my job. Because you're just a couple of times my mind not was thinking. just, yeah. 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 And there was a lot of times that I was thinking of uh, James's girlfriend at the time going, crap. If something happens to him, because they're going to come and knock on my door, they're not going to go knock on hers. How do I tell her something happened to him? You know, and am I strong enough to do that? So in your head, you're having these worst case scenario fantasies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I do a lot of stuff is I go to the worst case and then work my way back Mm -hmm. and going, okay, it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be this way or, you know, and then once he got back, he'd been back a couple of days before he call, was able to call. You know, oh, yeah, I'm back. Thank you for calling. I appreciate <laughs> that. You know, you could have called sooner. Oh, I didn't think about it. Those weeks yeah. that he was gone was during the Arab Spring. Uh, Is that what it was it called? Was during the second Arab Spring, uh, spring. spring, yeah, spring in Egypt, or the embassy pretty much went in the lockdown. We evacuated a bunch of people, or at least the, I think it was the Navy. It wasn't actually us, and there was a platoon that was sent in that was forward deployed in Spain. So we were on reactionary force back in the U.S. and 
pretty much like right after we got all of our inventory, the command came back and said, well, guess what? You're going back. Your leave is canceled. Call family and friends. You are leaving in 24 hours. There was a lot on the news when he was gone. And we had no idea where he was. And so you were watching the news. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how old were you guys when you got together? I was 15. You were 18. Yes, yeah. I think. Had he already enlisted before he, you guys? He was already there? in the delayed enrollment okay. program. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Going into it, like that was the way it was. I didn't know that we'd ended up getting married and staying through the whole time that he was in. He was just my high school boyfriend when, when it started. And What was it about each other that you fell in love with? She was just easy to talk to. She was not like the rest of the girls at high school that were, look at me, I'm pretty. She was, this is who I am. Whatever. Don't care. You're older and cool and (laughs) you had some friends in common too. Yeah. That's her kind of set us up. Yeah. (laughs) So how much time apart did you guys, were you together at all while he was serving or did you Yeah, we dated the whole time. How often would you see each other? When you'd come home on leave and that was all. I went to go visit you once when you were in Virginia. Yeah, for the Marine Corps ball. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which one that was. That's really tough. Most relationships don't survive, you know, deployment in those long periods of time apart. Yeah, when I was close to the end of my service, when I was kind of like back and kind of in my transition of getting out, that's kind of when I knew like she molested through this. She has to be the one now. (laughs) What was that time like for you to be away and... It was fast paced. There was really no downtime to think. It was what's the next mission. It was yeah. I'd, I'd say there's little to no downtime. Like you had the weekends, but mm-hmm. even then you were. Oh, I gotta get this ready for Monday, so I'll get that done Saturday, and I'll get that done Sunday. And yeah, there was there was absolutely like little to no downtime whatsoever. How many times did you find yourself in harm's way? None really, because. I was at this special unit called the Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Teams, which was an overt force for U.S. embassies and I forgot the Navy peer term for their forward bases. And we would do protection details for those. And we were kind of this force that because the Marines were so synonymous with being just brute force killers that if an embassy felt threatened or hey, we need to show that we're not weak. That's when we would get called. But I never got called during that time or anything, except for the reactionary force to the second Arab Spring in Egypt. But we were never deployed to actual Egypt. That was a different platoon. What was it like to transition back into civilian life? While I was in the military, it was exciting because I was finally moving on away from the stupidity of military high school leadership. It felt amazing to finally gain that independence of, I can do whatever I want. I, As long as I show up to, I was doing this security guard gig because the Navy didn't have enough personnel at their satellite bases, so they kind of used us for auxiliary security. We'd stand gate, but for the most part, it was, was a night shift job, and hey, show up from this time to this time, past that, I don't care what you do. Just make sure you show up sober. What? There's, there's no... I got to clean weapons or I need to do this or that. No, I don't care what you do on your off time. So it was finally like gaining your independence. But after I got out, when I started college, 
that's kind of when everything hit me. Why is this so slow paced? Like what, what's going on? I need to be doing something, but yeah, it was kind of like hitting a brick wall when you first get out. Cause you go from the structure to the unstructured. Yeah. You go from working an average of 10 and 12 hour days to, I don't know, hour, maybe two. When you first get to college, if you go straight to college, but yeah, most people go to work. So it's a nine to five job. All right. Well, did my job. Now what? So did you go through like a, what's the point kind of thought process? No, not for me. I always had a goal at the end of everything I did. So for college, it was when I first signed up, it was to be a teacher. So, all right, I need to do X, Y, and Z to be a teacher. And then I went my first like teacher's class to be a teacher. I'm like, nah, this and that really sparked my interest. So that's why I did criminal justice. And that's when it sparked because that military background was kind of, I don't know, perfect fit for me. Mm-hmm. But even then I still had like, I want to be a cop when I graduate. So I need to get X, Y, and Z done before I become, start planning to become a cop. So I always had a goal at the end. There was never really a point for me of why am I doing this? What? You know, I was in the reserves and I remember that shifting back and forth from military to civilian. And I, I hated it. Like if I had to leave to, you know, we got activated a couple, like, it was like, oh, I don't want to go. But then once you're there, you're like, oh, I don't want to come home. <laughs> and it didn't matter which one. You were just sort of got used to one and then you had to switch. And, and it is very different. You have that really intense, you know, like the 24-7 with the same people all the time to kind of being on your own. and Yeah, you'd only structured. have like one or two people that you talk to on a daily basis. It would be like your significant other. So for me, it was my mom and dad who I was living with and Amanda who I was going out with, but in the military, you had 50 guys you could go to like, Hey, let's go do something this weekend. Mm -hmm. Otherwise back in the civilian world. All right. I got two people I can call. What do I do? Yeah. Chris and Amanda, did you guys notice a difference in James when he came back? He was wiser, I guess, if, if you could say that more, well, he, he'd always been more mature, but there was just something that was different about him. He just seemed maybe more worldly, you know, very, okay, I've got this goal now. I got to get this done. I've got this. I want to do, I want to do this. I want to do that. But he'd, he'd had a lot of that growing up, you know, I've got homework to do. Okay. I got to get this done. I got to get this done. It's done. Move on to the next thing. So he was always like goal oriented and focused on and had a drive. Pretty much. Yeah. But he just I seemed so. more focused then? It, very much more. Okay. Yeah. So when he did come home, we kind of, we surprised him with welcoming home. My husband, Michael, went down and to Virginia and drove back with him because James had purchased a truck and we had set in motion the warrior riders to bring him home and he knew nothing about it. So Michael was kind of delaying him a little bit in trying to get home. And James is like, I want to get home. What are you doing? I don't need to go stop at your work. 
So when he came home, you know, there was the police that were there, the fire department was there, the flags were going, the sirens and everything coming home. After that happened, yeah, he was pretty, pretty focused. He did relax, did take a couple of weeks to just kind of unwind and just, he slept when he wanted, he ate when he wanted, he didn't, didn't have a real, you know, rigid schedule or anything. Went to the family camp out with us, but it seems like after that, it was like, okay, I need to get my stuff ready. I need to go to school. I need to get this done or that done or, and then he kind of, yeah, something clicked in him and it just became, you know, I got to get school done. Let's go. I think there was definitely an adjustment period though. I think at the beginning, starting school, you were frustrated and with the structure and with the the other students that didn't have the same kind of experience that you did. Yeah, he'd come home a couple yeah. of times and oh, those kids, <laughs> those kids, I can't believe well, it. And he was, you were 23, I think, and they're 18 in all his classes. And I think the maturity difference and the experience with all the stuff that you did in the military, that you kind of struggled with that at the beginning. What was it like for you to have the, was it the warrior riders? Yeah. What was that like for you? Oh, I was mad the entire time. Mm-hmm. I think if my dad wasn't driving the truck, I probably would have just turned around and went somewhere else. Why were you mad? Because I don't like surprises. I don't. <laughs> I don't like celebrating me. Like especially for my birthday, I think it frustrates Amanda a lot that when my birthday comes around, it's just like, nope, don't want to do anything. Just want to sit here and do nothing. Did you lose anybody's? Like while I was, in, mm-hmm. I lost one good friend. Marino Ortiz, he was my rat mate in SOI, the School of Infantry. We became close during that time because we were just, we were both being trained to do 0311 or being basic riflemen. He was going to be a reservist and he had pretty much like his entire life planned out of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to marry my high school sweetheart, we're going to have this many kids. And I don't know how or why we clicked, but we just did. And I think when I got to my first parent unit is when I got a call from his girlfriend saying that he got deployed and he got blown up by an IED and we lost him. But I think at that point in my life, it was, I was so indoctrinated into the Marine Corps. It was, we lose people. All right. Sorry. Sorry for your loss. Thoughts and prayers go out to you. All right. Got to move on to the next mission. I know we've heard from other vets of the, you know, you're celebrating your service, but there's a big conflict because of what you have to do in service and people that don't come home. Were you feeling some of that during that celebrating of your arrival home? Yeah, it, it was definitely like, it was nice. Like I got home, I came back with all my fingers and toes. I didn't go to any place crazy like Iraq and Afghanistan. I didn't have to deal with any of that. So I guess like you could say I had kind of survivor's guilt, but on the other hand, I knew that a lot of military members wouldn't want you to, I don't know, fantasize about their death and feel sorry. They wouldn't want you to be happy and move on with your life and make sure you pour a drink for them at the bar. Otherwise, make sure you're having a good time. How did you feel about Patrick? Enlisting. I was excited for him because I knew that's what he wanted to do. 
but I was also frustrated because I knew he was going to be frustrated just like me um, nearing the end. But the first year you're training, you're not really thinking, but after that first year and you're done with training and you've gone to your parent unit, you're, you're going to have a lot of frustration because he had a lot of common sense compared to like the leadership that I had to deal with. So I knew he was going to be, why are we doing it this way? We could be doing it this way. Why, why are we doing this? And I knew the leadership wouldn't give him any explanation of we're doing it this way because of X, Y, Z. And I knew he was just going to be frustrated the entire time. Did you have much contact with him when he was in? Not on a regular basis, but when he was home, not deployed, I would constantly be getting Facebook messages of his dank memes or dark memes or whatever. <laughs> and when he got closer to getting out, that's when I would constantly be getting text messages. And because he was huge in the guns, oh, what about this law? Well, technically this law states this way, but you can't get away with it that way. And explain the nuances of the laws that involve guns in Illinois. And, but past that, we didn't really write each other. We didn't mm -hmm. talk on a usual basis. But I would get the drunken call like mom <laughs> would. Yes. I was kind of excited for those, but also kind of frustrated because he would call out the most inconvenient of times. Like we'd be sitting down for dinner. Me and Amanda would be talking and then all of a sudden, oh, Patrick calling. Okay. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> what are you doing right now? I'm having dinner. What are you doing right now? Yeah. Well, was Patrick always wanting to enlist, uh, watching his brothers enlist? Was that something that was a goal for him? Yes, very much so. I have a picture of the four kids at Thomas's graduation from boot camp. And Thomas or Patrick took in everything Thomas was doing from how he held his hands to how he stood up straight. And there's the one picture of Patrick and his hands are folded the military way and he's, you know, standing as straight as he possibly could. So yeah, it was, we knew he was going in. So he really looked up to his brothers and, yes. you know, as role model for him. Very much so. Yeah. So when he said he was going in, what was that like for you? Not as bad. I think the other two kind of prepared me for it. So I went, oh, okay, you're going in. Okay. And he actually tried to get his enlistment date moved up to the beginning of June. And he would have been gone when James and Amanda got married. And I said, if you do, if you're going to do anything for me, you go leave your date in July be here for your brother's wedding. That was one thing that I'm going to ask you because he was gung-ho. He was, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. He said, okay, I can do that. I almost felt like, okay, I, I had a reprieve for that. Okay, he's going to be here for a very important part of our of our family history. And I remember the day after the wedding, he was gathering up all of the tuxedo pieces and parts and he comes up. He goes, mom, I'm glad. I'm glad that I was here. Thanks for telling me not to move my date. Grabbed his tuxedo and out the door he went, you know, and just, so I think he was happy to be there for that wedding. How would each of you describe him? He was funny. He loved life. He loved to have a good time. He, he was kind, well, he was a little lonely when his last few years of, of high school, 
James had his life and Elizabeth was away at school and Thomas had his life. So it was just him and I most of the time. But he went out with his friends and had a good time and just really enjoyed his life. It's what he loved to do. I would describe him as the perfect farmhand. <laughs> work hard from dusk to dawn. Yep. But the moment the work is done, we're having fun. That's the best way I could describe him. Anything you needed, he was there. Like one, I was building shelves in the garage. So I texted the family. I wasn't expecting anyone to come over for such a small project. But he's like, yeah, I'll be there after the farm. No questions asked. No, is there lunch involved? Are you going to buy me some beers? It was, nope, I'm here. This is what we're doing. Okay. You really liked working with Patrick, too, on the house. He, You always told me that you felt like he listened to you and let you be in charge of your project. And Yeah. The perfect farm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thomas said, oh, you should do it this way. No, this is my house. We're doing it my way. And my dad, well, you should probably be doing it this way. No, we're going to do it this way. Patrick was just, all right, this is what you want. This is what you get. Patrick was so sarcastic, too, about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he was. So how long did he serve for? Four years. And when did he come home? He came home the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend in 2019. And how was his adjustment back? It seemed like it was pretty easy. We did the same thing for him that we did for, because Thomas never got the the warrior riders, so he was kind of included in on James's. So Patrick kind of knew what was coming, wasn't happy about it, but, you know, was very good natured about it. He came home Sunday. He went to work Tuesday. He worked for a good friend down the street. Um, he does uh, sign repairs and didn't think anything of it. And uh, there were a couple of times that I had asked him, you know, you can take some time off, relax. Nope, got to go to work now. And out the door he'd go. And I think he liked having that that schedule. Would you add anything to that? Or did you notice anything? I mean, Foresight's 2020. I kind of, he gave me a Jameson bottle, I don't know, like a month or two before his event happened. And, you know, taught or in the military, you're taught these classes of like suicide prevention and everything like that kind of clicked in my head. Like you're giving away stuff. This is not a good thing. Why are you giving me this bottle? Oh no, just so I picked it up for you. Okay. But for the most part, he was extremely happy. I'm like, all right, well, let's see if he'll give me something. What do you, what do you think about your play carry? You want to give me that? No, hell no. I'm not giving you that play carry. That's mine. And other than that, I didn't really see anything crazy or that would have tipped me off to say, yeah, he's he needs someone to talk to or something needs to happen. It was Patrick just being Patrick for the most part. Do you have anything to add? I feel like we got to see him a lot, especially like in October, right before. He was at our house the three weekends before, I think. Like all three, we saw him. And he seemed like himself. Did you guys discuss your time in service? When he would come on leave, he would kind of vent his anger at whatever he was angry at with me. And because I felt like I could understand him a lot better than even Thomas could. Because while Thomas served, he only did two years, two years, two years active. And he was in the Navy, he wasn't in the Marine Corps. So 
But other than that, we didn't really, when he got out, he was kind of frustrated with the, what's it, the college stuff. But like I was constantly reminding him before he even got out, make sure you're on college stuff, make sure you, you're applying and doing all this. All right. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. Whatever. It's Patrick being Patrick. Yeah. He didn't like to be reminded to do things. I got it. Don't worry about it, mom. I got it. So he kept everything pretty tucked in of whatever he was, whatever was bothering him. Yeah. Whatever was bothering him, I, I did not catch any sense that something was wrong or something was afoot. It was, he kept his cards close to his chest. Um, yeah. I think the weekend before we were playing poker and he seemed sad that kind of all the older, all the older guys were getting tired and like, Oh man, I'm kind of tired. I want to go to bed. I want to go home. Seemed like he was kind of sad, but for the most part, nothing ticked me off. So you guys don't know if he had experienced anything overseas that you know, was troubling him or you know, he's wrestling with. The only thing, and James and I had had a conversation about it. We think there was something in Japan. He was so excited to be going to Japan. Mom, I'm going to Japan. And when he got there, he called me a couple of weeks after he had gotten there. And I went to this, this really cool mall and it's different floors. There's a whole floor for electronics. And then there's clothing on this floor and there's something else on that floor. And he was really excited. And I said, okay, well, what are you going to go see? Well, I'm going to go do this, that, or the other thing. And I went, okay. And I hadn't talked to him for couple weeks because when they're deployed it's very hard to have conversations with them and then the next time I talked to him was uh, about six weeks after that first phone call and it was I can't wait to get out of here I can't wait to leave I want to I I need to get back to to the states and he just was really really angry I don't know if it was the same for you, James. It was. It was exactly the same. You're finally on your first deployment. You're finally doing the thing that you trained so long to do. And then, so he was in the same unit that I was, but he was an armorer. So he did even less. So I'm sure he was bored out of his mind of sitting on the bench, waiting to get the call and never getting the call. And he was super excited to finally get home to actually do something. And do you have any idea what he might have, what might have happened? Not that I can think of, except for right when I was getting out of Japan, the base got put in the lockdown because there was a bunch of military service members that got caught raping people, flipping cars, and just being drunk and belligerent to the point of Japanese governments. Like, you guys are not allowed to leave the base. So the, the military pretty much put the base on lockdown. So I'm sure that compounded whatever happened to him over there. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to share about that day? The day that he posted a Facebook post. How did you find out? My phone blew up. Everybody was calling me and asking me where he was. And I kept saying, he's at work. He's, he worked because at that time he worked for Home Depot. He's at work. He went, went in, you know, his usual time. And I kept telling everybody, don't worry about it. He's at work. And they kept saying, well, where is he? And it wasn't until I had talked to my sister, because Elizabeth, I talked to Elizabeth, and she had something, said something about a post. 
But finally, it was my sister Carolyn that I had talked to, and she said he wrote something really bad on on Facebook. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to prove to you guys that he's right where he should be. He's fine. And I talked to her the whole way there, and things kind of, because she read me what he had written, and I'm like, okay. So I started panicking, and I pulled into the parking lots, and I started yelling, his car's not here. The truck's not here. What do I do? And I said, I'm going to go in, into work because maybe maybe he parked in the back. or And I walked, I ran into the building and kind of frantically went to the cashier and said, I'm Patrick O'Reilly's mom. I need to speak to him. Can you page him? Can you bring him to the front? Can you do something? And so she's like, okay. And she's taking her time and flipping through the book to figure out what she's doing. And, you know, I'm wringing my hands going, okay, just I need to see, physically see him, make sure he's okay. She paged him and nothing happened. And I'm like, okay, you're not doing what I'm asking or what I need you to do. And so finally I said, I need to, I need to talk to him. There's something going on. I need to talk to him. And she goes, well, maybe you can talk to the lady in the, the booth here. And so she comes over and I said, I need to talk to Patrick O'Reilly. She paged him. He's not coming. Please, is there somebody I can talk to? And with that, his manager came up and I asked him, I said, did Patrick come to work today? And he pulled up his phone and goes, no, he called me at and told me that he wouldn't be in today. And I saw the, the, the his call log and it was 2.36 when Patrick had called him. And I went, okay. And he looked at me, he goes, what's going on? I said, we can't find him. He's missing. And I said, if he calls you, if he shows up, please give me a call. And they're like, okay, you know, let us know if there's anything we can do. I raced back out to my car, got into it. And with that, Michael called and told me that the police department had been at the door. I started screaming in the car and said, I'm going to the police station. They've got to have some information. I've got to be able to to talk to them. Being a, the preschool teacher in the village, I had had several of the police Department, their children, fire department. So I kind of felt like I had that connection, you know. And of course, none of the guys I knew were on shift at that point. So I had tried to get into the um, to the police department, but they had the outside doors; they had them locked. So I called the one police officer that I knew and said, I'm trying to, this is what's going on. I'm trying to get information. Can you help me? And he goes, just stay where you're at. I'll have somebody come out. So he called his boss and they were looking for information. And then I don't even remember the guy's name that came out. And he had on a little card, you know, this is the sheriff's apartment. This is the phone number. This is the address. This is everything that you need. You know, this is where they're looking for him at this point. And I, you know, thanked him. And of course, I'm in tears and I left and I went, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to go home. And I drove home and I came into the house and asked where Michael was. Well, Michael was on his way to the police station to get me. And he walked in a few minutes later. I said, I've got this phone number we need to call. And James was already at the house. And so we all went 
to the phone and put it on speaker. And we were talking to a guy out in, was that Ogilvy? Ogle County Sheriff's? Um, I think that's who we were talking to. Yeah. And they basically. How far said, away is that from your home? 45 minutes to an hour. It's out towards Oregon, Illinois, Rock River, out that way. And they basically told us they have no information at this particular point. They're still looking for him. Were they looking in that area for a reason? Yes, because he had called 911 and told them that he was suicidal. So they kind of knew about where he was at. And for us, it seemed like the time was just ticking by at a snail's pace. But for them, I'm sure they were searching every which way that they could. And once he had made that phone call, then they started pinging his phone so they could kind of pinpoint where he was at a little bit better. I know at one point we were standing around. I had, I had been outside. I couldn't, I couldn't be in, in the house. It just seemed like there were just too many people there and I, I didn't want to talk to anybody, but I was outside and I was again on the, on the phone and I was talking with my girlfriend who was talked to me through a lot of things. And just, I kept pacing up and down the block and, and pacing and, I have no idea what was going on in the house. Carolyn came out and said, you need to come in. I'm like, no, I can't come in. Thomas came out. Mom, you need to come in. You're freezing cold. I said, no, I'm not coming in. I can't. I can't go in right now. And I felt every time I turned towards the house that I couldn't go in. I couldn't go in. There was just something I just didn't want to be in the house. My mother-in-law and my one sister-in-law showed up. Carolyn was at the house. James was at the house. Thomas and Anne were at the house. Michael was there. And Michael came out and he went to his truck and got a cigarette. He goes, you know, you really need to come in the house. I said, I'll come in in a little while. And I just, I could not go in the house. Finally, I think it was, I was cold enough. I had to go in the house. And I just remember a lot of them were sitting at the kitchen table. And the next thing I know, I took off my jacket. The next thing I know, Jane jumps up and goes, I got to do something. And he goes flying downstairs. And we're like, okay. And Michael had left for some reason, or he was out in the garage, or he wasn't in the house. And James gathered up something from some equipment or something from Patrick's room and he went out the front door as Michael came in the back door and said we need to go to Mercy Hospital so I immediately said stop James and so Thomas goes tearing out the door to stop James and I've never seen eight people get their coats on so fast what were you doing so when when I first got or was it we were shopping at Target at the time with your Mm sister-in-law what time was that it was before dinner. It was like 5.30 or 5 o'clock. Yeah, something like that. And then what time is it now when you got up and went downstairs? Oh, that was a couple, felt like a couple hours after, yeah, a couple hours after we finally got the call at Patrick suicidal. He's out somewhere. We don't know where he is. No information is being given. Patrick had some night vision. 
and he had his Kevlar set up and everything. So it was all kind of ready to go. And I remember, you know, my night vision, this is how we walk at night. This is how you find person and every, all that training kind of like just clicked back into me. And I'm like, all right, well, the police department probably doesn't have night vision. I have an upper, uh, upper hand on them. I could probably at least do something. I, I know where his truck is. So I want to go start from his truck and follow his footprints. Whether or not he was bleeding, like I knew blue light picks up blood at night. So I, I had all the tools at my disposal to go find him. So I wasn't going to sit there and do absolutely nothing. So you come back in, you all jump in a car. How far away is Mercy Hospital? It was just over 40 minutes. It seemed like it took us a lot longer to get there, yet it seemed very quick. It was Thomas drove because we were trying to figure out what car to take because we all wanted or I wanted everybody to drive together. And so that took us a couple of minutes. But Thomas was driving his girlfriend and pulled out her phone and got directions on how to get to that hospital. And Carolyn, James and I were in the back seat. Michael and Anna and Thomas were in the front and we just, we started driving and Ian would give Thomas directs, turn here, go this, you know, drive this way. And every once in a while she'd hear, okay, we'll be there in about 30 minutes. I'm like, okay, I've got to do something. And I'm sitting in the back of the, the truck and I, you know, pulled out my phone. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll say a rosary. That'll get us there faster. And I kept mumbling the same words over and over and over again. And I'm like, okay, well, forget this. And so I'm like, okay, you've got to relax. And I remember closing my eyes and there was Patrick's face and he had tubes coming out of him. And that kind of scared me a bit. So I'm like, okay. So I started praying, just let me get there to say goodbye. We need to be able to say goodbye. And that was kind of like the mantra in my head. And I was trying to talk to James and, and Carolyn. And I don't even know if I, what I said, if I said anything, I just. Was it, was it around 11 o'clock at night at this point when you guys get to the hospital? It was 1030 when Michael came running in telling us that we had to go. And I don't, don't know why I remember that time. What did, um, <clears throat> what did you know about Patrick's situation by that time? We knew that he was out in Oregon. They had found his truck. He was suicidal. They had been talking to him, but he had hung up. We also knew that his pistol was missing. James was able to go down and take a look at all of his guns that he had brought back and came up and said, this particular pistol was missing. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I just I, I don't remember a whole lot other than I do remember grabbing your hand at one point. In the truck or in the in the truck. Um, that was definitely Aunt Carolyn's hand. Oh, that was okay. <laughs> I grabbed somebody's hand. That was Aunt Carolyn's hand. And because I remember because she leaned over and your mom needs to calm down because she's got a death grip on my hand. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm on the other side of the truck. I can't do anything for you. Did yeah. they tell you anything about his condition at the hospital and why you guys were having to rush there? No, just we needed to we needed to get there. We needed to get there as fast as we could. They had found him, and he was in critical critical condition. But they, 
at that point. We, you know, we kind of all had our own ideas. We, you know, he's got a pistol. Okay. So we know what he's going to do, but I don't think any of us really verbalized that we thought that maybe he took his own life. Got to the hospital. I remember that. And Anne, all the way through, kept going, okay, we should be there in 20 minutes. We should be there in 10 minutes. If you look over to your left or your right or whatever direction it was, you'll see the hospital. And it seemed like the closer we, we got there, we couldn't get there fast enough. And then once we pulled onto the hospital campus, I remember thinking, Thomas, just pull into a spot we need to get in there. And then we got out and Michael lit a cigarette. And I'm like, I'm going in the hospital. You can stay out here and smoke. I'm going to see my my son. And I ran up to the window and said, I'm Patrick's mom. I'm here to see Patrick O'Reilly. And the woman kind of goes, okay. And she kind of pats the counter and stood up. We need to get you a room. And that's when I kind of, I think I lost it at that point. And I went, I can't do this. You know, and I started walking the opposite way. And I remember somebody coming up and grabbing my hand going, no, you can do this. And there again, I thought it was James that had grabbed my hand. And yeah, it was me. <laughs> it was you? Yeah, because okay. like, you immediately started walking out the door. And I felt like yeah. I had to drag you to the room. Yeah, I just, I felt like a little kid being led, you know, to the principal's office. I, I don't care what you were going to say to me. I didn't want to hear it. But it was one of those things that I kept going in the back of my head, just move your feet, just move your feet. And um, were you going to the room that Patrick was in? No. No, we went to no. like a, a family, waiting, yeah, family yeah. room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the time we had gotten there, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law, Mrs. O and Terry, they had followed us, but somehow they got to the hospital before we did. And when we walked in, my brother-in-law, my or my brother-in-laws, Mike and T- and Dave, were already at the hospital. And I'm like, well, how did they get here? And later we found out that they too had been on their way to Oregon. So they were going to start with the bars and you know search every bar until mm-hmm. they found Patrick. So there were quite a few of us, and we were in this this tiny little room, and we were all crammed in there and then it was a nurse practitioner that came in and a nurse that came in and gave us the news and was kind of talking us through what had happened they found him on the island and it took, they resuscitated him and then he they had to do that several times before taking him off the island then a couple of times in the ambulance then a couple of times at the hospital but they thought that he was okay they tried to do it, get him to a C- CT scan and he arrested again but now he was as stable as they could they, they could get him and they wanted to do a CT scan before we saw him and I do remember interrupting the the woman speaking, and I said, "Is he alive?" And she said, "Yes, he is alive at this point." And then I asked, "Could I? Could we see him?" And they said, "Well, let us get the CT scan first, and then you know we'll clean him up, and you can come in and see him." People just kind of left the room, but some stayed in the room. And after that point, it just, for me, comes becomes very chaotic. I 
waiting, waiting and pacing and I'm texting friends and going, okay, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you where anybody was at that point. And then you get to see him. Then they came and they said, okay, we're ready. You can see him. Did everyone come in? They said family only. So Michael and I, Thomas and James, went in. And as we were walking down the hall, Thomas and James were in front of us. And I, my heartbeat was going really, really fast because I have no idea what he's going to look like. And I saw his feet sticking off the gurney. I went, damn, that kid is tall. And then I started really panicking, going, okay. I can't do this. And I thought, no, you've got to breathe. And so I stopped and I'm like, okay, I just need a second here. And by that time, Thomas and James were already in. So Michael stopped with me. I took a few deep breaths and I said, okay, I got to do this. And I walked in and there he is just laying there and he had the, he was hooked up to the breathing machine and kind of smiled because they were the the tubes that I had seen him having and I grabbed his arm and I just started rubbing his cheek and because of the the breathing tube that they had on him they had it strapped down you couldn't you know you couldn't rub his cheek too much but I just kind of played with his beard a little bit and we're here Patrick we love you and the doctor started talking saying we want to run this test and that test. We want to take him to the ICU. And I remember shaking my head. And with that, the doctor kind of like, they, they kind of zone in on somebody that's willing to talk to them at that point. And so they looked at me and I said, no, he, he no, we're not doing any of that. And he's like, okay. So then the doctor had left the room and we're standing there and we're, the four of us are just talking. And I remember looking at, at the boys and James had his hand and Thomas was just rubbing his leg and we're all kind of talking to Patrick, you know, we're here. We love you. Michael, I don't remember Michael saying too much. And then the doctor came back in and said, the radiologist read this, read the scan. And they called it, I believe it was a catastrophic injury, which basically means there's, he's not coming back from this. And that they had given him heart medicine. They'd given him four out of the five heart medicines to keep his heart going. And at that point, I said, no, we can't do this. I, I won't see my child suffer. We just, we have to let him go. And... Thomas, James, Michael, nobody said anything. So they didn't contradict me, which I felt relief. And then um, we stood there and we were just talking to him for a while and I kept stroking his cheek and Michael came over and kind of kissed him on the cheek. And then him and Thomas laughed. Mrs. O'Reilly and Terry came in. Carolyn came in. I don't remember whether... What happened with them? I just know that they they left, and James and I were standing there with Patrick, and we were we were watching the machines. And it wasn't he was alive one minute and gone the next. It was a very slow 
you saw the numbers just drop and they would drop again and they would drop again. And then the you could see the nurse, she turned the screen away from us and she's pushing buttons and trying to get his pulse. So I think at that point we knew that he was, he wasn't long for the world. And so Thomas and, or yeah, Thomas and Michael came back in and the doctor came in and he said, okay, now is the time for us to, to start compressions. Are you sure? And I said, no, we have to, we have to let him go. I don't want to see him suffer. And with that, they turned off all the machines and a couple minutes later, they pronounced him and he was gone. I don't know about you, James, but for me, it was very, it was very peaceful. He was, he was at peace. He wasn't struggling. He wasn't struggling to breathe or to live. He was just, he was very much at peace. And I think at that point, I did kiss his cheek. I told him I loved him. And then there was a a chair there. And I remember going and sitting on the chair and James never left his side. Never let go of his hand. What was going through your mind at that time? I was kind of angry at him. Like all through the military, you're taught, talked about suicide and make sure you're aware of this, make sure you're watching out for each other. And uh, I felt like he took, at the time, I felt like he took the coward's way out of, how could you do this to us? But I thought, I don't know what you went through. I wish I would have told me, but this is what you wanted. I wish I would have said something to him or made sure that he told me everything he needed to. But at that point, I just wanted to make sure he wasn't alone. Someone was with him at all times. That's all I could think of. I wanted to make sure that someone was there. I knew uh, Dad was compartmentalizing already. He was, all right, it's done, moving on. Thomas was going to take care of Dad. Mom was kind of in her place, but we were all thinking of him, but no one was physically there. Felt like I couldn't let go of his hand. His, uh, all I could think about it was how rough his hand was at the time, too. Do you think he fought to stay alive until you guys could say goodbye? Yes. I think he did. We were able to get a report um, that kind of gave us a little bit more information as far as time-wise. And between them resuscitating him, and I, I honestly, I think that he wanted us to be able to say goodbye. Because it was almost seven hours, yeah. so I just yes, I think he wanted it. He wanted us to be able to say our final goodbyes. Why did you want to tell his story today? Because he was my son. I don't want him to be forgotten. And it's you have funerals, and you go on with with your life, and you say goodbye to people. You say goodbye to your grandparents. Um, say goodbye to your parents. You never expect to say goodbye to your, your child. He was such a special part of our life. I don't want him to be forgotten. How about you? 
like all through the military, you're told about all these different groups of like 22 kill and all these suicide awareness things. And, you know, you're usually associating them with PTSD of along the lines of like, I was in 20 firefights and I got blown up by 20 IADs or something along those lines. And Patrick never, to my knowledge, saw combat. He deployed to Japan, Spain, Bahrain. Those weren't weren't combat zones. But somehow, someway, he felt that he had to end his life. Something happened. Something didn't happen. He felt something. So I want to make sure that veterans know, no matter how small it is, need to talk to somebody. Even if it's a girlfriend or brother, sister, mom, dad, somebody. There's no such thing as something too small. Did you struggle with this? No, I I kind of made peace with him on his deathbed at the hospital. I've compartmentalized it. There's there's no there's nothing that anyone can tell me unless if it's hey we can bring him back. But other than that, what done what is done is done. There's there's nothing I can do anymore. But did you struggle with your own transitioning back into the? I did, but it was more angry. But I let that anger go after I don't know, I'd say after my first year of college. Of these are just kids; they haven't been one. They haven't been through what I've been through. Could anyone have said or helped you at that time? No, I think it's one of those things that you just have to work through yourself. Of you have to come to realize that no one has gone through your kind of experience before. It's it sounds stupid, but it's like a one of a million. They haven't been through what you've been through. No one has been through what you've been through except for the guys in your platoon. But even then they move on. They've been through different experiences. So if someone's listening to this and they're in that dark place, what would you want to say to them? I I couldn't say. I don't really like hypotheticals. It's really, are they angry? Are they sad? I gotta, I gotta have more context than they're in a dark place. Well, everyone has a different dark place. Patrick had a dark place. It wasn't any, anything nightmarish like combat or anything like that. So I feel like I'd have to be there to actually see them, talk to them. The only thing I could really say is you need to talk to somebody, even if it's a stranger at a bar. Tell somebody. Is it worth fighting that fight? I think so. You can't just give up and just let yourself go there. Even though you feel like you're the only person in the world that cares about your issue, there there's people around you. You're, you have your family. Uh, even if you don't have your family, you have your friends. Like uh, his his buddies in the military. Like they all came out. They were all thinking of him. Could have picked up the phone. Text something, anything. Hey guys, not feeling too good. All right, well, we're here for you. If you want to call, just call. Does it get better? I think it does. You just have to let it go and find yourself, I guess. How long has it been since you've been back in civilian world? It's 2013, summer. Yeah. And since then, you've gone to college, you've gotten married. Yeah. 
and you're about to be a dad. Yeah, about to be a dad. All those things that Patrick won't get to do. And, you know, as a witness to your guys' story, I wish that anyone that was in that dark place could watch what you guys had to go through so they could see what they're really leaving behind. And I, I think you're right. We never know anyone else's story, pain, struggle. I don't think we have to. And I think it's a dangerous game to try to compare those things of if this person's in more pain or that person. And for whatever reasons, you know. But this world is hard and it's painful. And it's it's designed that way, I think, for a purpose. And from what I know about human beings, this is how we grow for whatever reason. And when we stop that growth process, I think that's the saddest part. And any any veterans that are really hurting over these things, go to a funeral and just see that experience. That was an amazing thing to watch. You know, to see these people who have served 20, 30, 40, I don't know how many years ago, still showing up, still caring, and still knowing that, that how painful it is and how... It, you can make peace with it because we don't know what, what pain he was in, but he's at peace and you know that. And that's, that's awesome that you have that feeling. And, you know, I've heard, I read one of your posts where you said, I'll never get to hold your children and celebrate things. And, and he took that from you. He but did. I, I was very angry when I wrote that. Yeah. I think of the things that we're experiencing with James and Elizabeth and Thomas and I won't be able to dance at Patrick's wedding. I won't hold his children. I, I feel like I need to, I need an outlet for it. So I've been writing him letters. I put things on, on Facebook. I'm the one in the family that needs to talk things through. And I've had many conversations with Patrick. Many, many conversations with him. What would you say to a family member who was going through this? Hold tight to your memories. Think of the good things. Let the bad things fade away. Hold tight to the rest of the family that you have. You're stronger than you think you are. I have no idea how I found the strength to walk out of that hospital because that was the second time I had to leave him in a hospital. If you have a faith, hold on to that. Because that's what's pulling me through this, is my faith in God. If I didn't have that, my family probably would be committing me. Because I would not be able to do what I did. I, there's no way I could do it. What would you like to say to people out there? I think that was amazing during the services and the week before. How many people came around and were there for us. And for you guys especially. So I think lean on, lean on each other and be there for each other. That's a really important thing because when we're in pain, we want to run away. We want to mm -hmm. distance ourselves and to lean in means you have to face it. And it, and that is part of how we heal. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very proud of my family, my two sons, my daughter, my daughter-in-law, the boyfriend and girlfriend, my my granddaughter, we we all came together and we held on to each other. 
So instead of this dividing us, I think this has brought us even closer than we were. And I'm just very, very proud of the family that Michael and I created. Very proud of my kids, all four of them. If you could talk to Patrick, what would you say to him today? Yeah, dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. I miss you terribly. I wish you were here. You're missing out on knowing another family member that's coming. Your niece misses you. We all miss you. But we love you, and we hope you're at peace. I hope the demons aren't haunting you anymore. They're in a better place. Wish we could hang out more. I think the same that we miss him, we love him. And I'm so sorry that our daughter won't get to know him. Is there anything that anyone can do to help people that are going through something like this? As an outside person, it's so hard to know how to help you guys. Whether it be a, a parent who has lost a child or someone struggling with suicidal thoughts. We have been very blessed because we are part of a community that has not stopped calling us, has not stopped sending cards and letters and making those phone calls or sending us texts. Don't, don't stop. Let them know that you're thinking about them. Um, you might think that it'll bring up the memories, but the memories are always at the forefront of our mind anyway. Just let people know that you're thinking of them. That to me, that was, and it's still very important to this day. Let me talk about Patrick. Yeah. Cause six months from now, we don't know who's going to be there, you know, but in the meantime, you know, just let us talk. I think just don't go off to the wayside. Like, right. The event's over. Moving on. It's something that you have to constantly do. Even months, years after the event, like um, me and Amanda constantly worrying about my mom and dad. We should do dinner with them. Make sure that we're doing something for them. And I think that's really important. That you don't just let it let it go. No. Like mom said that. Send that letter. Make sure that other people know that you're thinking about them. Anything you want to add? I don't think so. I told our OBGYN what was going on because I had a doctor's appointment right after. And last time I went, I hadn't seen him the last time I saw a different doctor. And he asked about him and it helped. Or show up and sing to them. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that was Gene and Ray and (laughs) my other crazy aunts and uncles and parents showed up and sang us Christmas carols and I didn't want to celebrate Christmas and you made a very good memory for me and Michael in a very bad in a very horrible time for us so thank you we just the words thank you are are not big enough Mm -hmm. people don't you say thank you for even the simplest little things and in writing the the thank you notes I, I wish they were just so big that people understood how much those words mean to at least to us. I know. So 
we appreciate all of it, you know, and, and thank you just as not, those words just are not big enough. We want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and, and honoring Patrick in this way. It is very courageous in, in recording this right now, less than three months since he left, right? Yes. And for the three of you to come on this podcast and, and honor him in this way and, you know, maybe be able to reach out to some of our listeners out there that might be struggling and feel alone, you know, give them maybe that, that hope and the direction that might help them. Don't just ask, are you okay? You know, dig a little bit deeper. If you see somebody struggling, how are you feeling today? What can I help you with? It's those little things. It's also having people like you guys that give us an outlet for our grief. I've told you before, keep fighting the fight that you are because without people like you, we would have no outlet for this. We would have no outlet for our grief and the people listening might not think of calling the suicide hotline, talking to a family member, reaching out in some way. So thank you both for doing this. And for anyone out there listening, if you would like to get a message to the O'Reilly's, uh, you can send that at uh, contact at couplesynergy.com and we will make sure to pass that along. We're also going to include in the show notes uh, the 800 number and suicide hotline, you know, for anyone out there that might be struggling. You know, humans have been sharing their stories since the beginning of time to bond and heal and grow. And we hope that by you guys sharing your story, it's brought some healing to your lives and to the lives of our listeners. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. Again, if you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, you can email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone that needs to hear this, please download it and share it. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.